It's been more than two years since Dr. Paul Watton joined me on the business of biotech. In fact, it was episode nine in the summer of 2020 when Dr. Watton came on the show to talk about his unique approach to keeping the lights on and the labs running when large swaths of the world were locked down during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. His company, Obsidian Therapeutics, survived and in fact, just recently announced FDA clearance of its first IND application. I'm Matt Piller, and on today's episode of the Business of Biotech, it's welcome back to Dr. Paul Watton, CEO of Obsidian Therapeutics. On today's episode, we're going to discuss precision medicine and what that means to Obsidian. We're going to get a behind-the-scenes look at the company's recent IND, and we'll have a bit of a retrospective on that unique approach Obsidian took back uh, during COVID to solve its workforce crisis during the pandemic. Dr. Watton, thanks for joining us. Welcome back to the Business of Biotech. Thank you, Matt. It's uh, it's great to reconnect um, after a sort of hectic two years or more, maybe, since I was on the last show that I did with you guys. And uh, pleased to say we've made good progress here at Obsidian and uh, very excited now to be able to uh, share the news that we're getting up ready to uh, dose our first patient with our technology as a result of what we did through COVID, in fact. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. all good. Yes, uh, it, it is all good. And I'm hoping we can kind of bring all those themes together here as we kind of look look at what's going on at Obsidian now and kind of, like I said, do a, a bit of a retrospective mm-hmm. on uh, the, 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 the progress and growth that have happened. Uh, despite and during the, the pandemic. Um, but I want to start with that IND. That's the fresh news. It was just in July uh, that Obsidian and MD Anderson announced the FDA's clearance of your IND application for your tumor infiltrating lymphocyte therapy candidate OBX-115. Um, so that's been about two years in the making, I think, since the agreement with MD Anderson was announced. Uh, so let's start with that candidate. Tell us about the candidate. Yes, so we have developed a TIL therapy, which is uh, going to be able to target solid tumors. We're starting out with melanoma, Um, but this uh, IND is actually applicable to more than one tumor type. So lung cancer, for example, would be another one. And what we've developed is an engineered TIL that carries its own membrane-bound IL-15, which provides, it's like a battery pack for a TIL. Um, But this means that you do not need to give patients IL-2 therapy when they're receiving TILs. And IL-2 is a cytokine that's quite potent. About half of the patients that take IL-2 as a result of uh, going through TIL therapy actually end up in the ICU. So we're clearly going to be... um, giving these patients the therapy now, which will obviate the need for an ICU to be present, which opens up the number of study sites you can work in. Um, But most importantly, I think it's a better therapy for the patient as well because it's IL-2 free. So we also are able to treat um, patients who are frail that couldn't tolerate IL-2 therapy. Now they'll be able to have an option of using an engineered TIL to treat them, which is um, going to be uh, as effective as a regular TIL. Uh, just much easier to use in terms of its side effects. So it's very, actually really good news. Um, we developed it uh, in conjunction with our colleagues down at MD Anderson. All of this was done during COVID, so it's uh, actually fantastic to be able to come out of that two-year period with a, an IND clearance under our belt. Yeah, 
Yeah, for sure. Um, I want to learn a little bit more about what the patient population looks like. You mentioned uh, a couple of indications there. Um, so, you know, as you as you uh, look to begin clinical trials on the heels of this IND, uh, what are you looking for in terms of the patient population that, you're, that, that, that you want to recruit? Yes. So for the first trial, we're going to be, the first patients being dosed will be uh, patients with metastatic melanoma that will have been through um, three lines, no more than three lines of checkpoint inhibitor mm. therapy. And uh, they will be eligible to participate in our TIL trial. And for as a reference point, the, the patient population that we're going to be looking at is basically the same as what was known as cohort four in the recent IAVANS data that was, was published. So that's the same. It's a real-life population of patients with metastatic melanoma. Mm-hmm. There'll be um, you know normal age range for TIL, and uh, we're going to be doing this um, this work initially down at MD Anderson, um, which we hope to be starting uh, very shortly in terms of bringing patients in and starting to treat them. Yeah, and it's, it really is imminent. Yeah, yeah. Um, what what is the what does the patient population look like down down the road? So post clinical, like what's what is uh, if you will the the market opportunity? Let's say look like for for obsidian with these therapeutics. Yeah, that's a good question. So I think that for let's just say we have an IL two free till right now, which is this membrane bound IL fifteen approach we're using. You would be able to treat patients who are unable to tolerate IL two number one. And that's that means that you can actually treat patients who may not have access to a center like MD Anderson. Um, so we'll be able to broaden the uh, the number of patients that are able to be treated just based on where they're located as much as anything else. Mm-hmm. And secondly, um, when you treat a patient with metastatic melanoma, um, the average age of diagnosis for melanoma is somewhere around 65 years old. Um, in lung cancer, it's actually 71 years old. So um, when you have a TIL therapy, I think once you're getting to about 75, you become ineligible for TIL therapy anyway. So we're going to, and that's because of the IL-2. So we're going to be able to treat these older patients that are more frail with our TIL, give them hope that we can actually cure them. And um, the number of indications we go after, I think, in terms of tumor type, the first one's metastatic melanoma because that is the one that's used as the gold standard for TIL therapy. It's been used for about 20, 25 years to treat metastatic melanoma. So there's no target risk to us. Um, and then with respect to lung, I think that's a much bigger market opportunity because there's many more patients present with lung cancer than metastatic melanoma. So, um, And I think the other part of this is that uh, we're going to be able to treat these patients in more of a domestic setting than a hospital setting, which I think is better mm-hmm. all around. It's actually more cost-effective too. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, I think you used the words uh, in, in your response to my last question, um, patients who are are intolerant or don't have any, any tolerance for, for IL-2. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm obviously not an expert, not a scientist, but I've done a lot of reading on IL-2, you know, and, and failed attempts over the years with IL-2, and it occurs to me that that uh, intolerant patient population must be very large because there's the toxicity has been a, a big problem with IL-2 from the outset, has it not? Like, has, hasn't, I mean, hasn't that been the big issue with uh, with multiple companies pursuing IL-2? 
Um, it has, yeah. That's actually uh, it's a really good point because for IL two to be effective, you need to give it at high concentrations systemically, and that's um, something that has been done with uh, with genetically engineered IL two. The um, the challenge though with IL two is it's got a very short half life, so it gets cleared from the body quite quickly. And that's why high dose IL-2 is necessary to get systemic levels that uh, are able to actuate cell therapies, as an example. Mm -hmm. Um, But that high level comes with the consequence of side effects. And so there's been um, a recognition about this, and people have attempted to engineer their way around it by um, changing the molecule, for example, uh, which it sticks around a bit longer in the bloodstream, but um, those approaches haven't been as successful as I think they would have liked to have been. So I think the the real answer here is to be able to deliver high levels of cytokine locally, whether it's IL-2 or IL-15. So um, you could potentially think of a, a platform where you can localize the IL-2 expression to somewhere like the peritoneal cavity, Um Or you could look at what we're trying to do, which is to attach the cytokine IL-15 to the cell surface of a till. And when that um, till reaches the tumor, then the IL-15 effectively only works within that tumor environment. So you localize the effect of the the cytokine and you've got it at a high concentration where it's needed most. And that avoids the systemic circulation, which I think is really important. Mm -hmm. So that's the approach we're taking. Localized delivery of cytokine at high levels is really what we're trying to achieve. So it's effective where it needs to be effective, but doesn't have any effect um, systemically. Yeah. Perfect. You just answered uh, two two questions in one because I, I was going to ask you a little bit about the mechanism of action, how how, how the thing works, and, and and you touched on that for me. So thank you. Um, heading into into clinical studies, what does your manufacturing environment look like? Good question. So one of the reasons we went into the partnership with MD Anderson was because they actually had till manufacturing capability. Hmm down in Houston. In fact, they had it when we signed up with them. Um, Quite shortly afterwards, they acquired a 60,000 square foot state-of-the-art manufacturing facility from Bellicum Pharmaceuticals. And um, that facility itself has now gone into a joint venture with uh, Resilience, which was announced, I think, in May of this year. So we now have access to a site that is a commercial site it's a joint venture between MD Anderson and Resilience, and uh, we can manufacture our till therapy there using a state-of-the-art facility. So we're going to be doing that. Um, the beauty of that is it was a seamless transition for us because the development work around this till therapy was all done down at uh, that facility in MD Anderson over the last two or three years. So we've gone from being able to engineer the till, which we did all of the work here in um in Cambridge to being able to optimize its production down at MD Anderson. Mm-hmm. And now we've actually been able to transition that seamlessly into an organization which is committed to providing commercial facilities to manufacture all types of cell therapies. And we're there right at the start with this facility at MD Anderson. So I think we've actually, we've pioneered something in a sense. 
I was going to um, ask, I mean, how do yeah. you, how, as you were talking, you know, you say you, you pioneered something and that maybe that gets to the, the next question I was going to ask around, like, what is that? What is that? How do you characterize this relationship with, with this facility at MD Anderson? I mean, is it technically or, uh, you know, officially called a, 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 a CMO or is it, is it not like, wh- how do you kind of characterize that relationship? Well, we, we put a, um, all encompassing, JV together, I guess, is a way to describe it initially um, with MD Anderson, where we were partnering with them to run the clinical trial with us, to do the manufacturing and optimization of manufacturing with us. And the whole purpose of this was to get our technology platform into patients very rapidly, more rapidly than we could have done if we'd have done everything ourselves uh, with a CDMO, for example. So we were able to expedite our first into human study by working in partnership with MD Anderson along the um, the development side, the manufacturing side, the clinical side, and actually working with their reg affairs group as well mm. to get the IND um, put in, you know, basically cleared. So we have been able to work with them. They had a lot of experience already working with TILs. They actually have their own TIL program down there. So for us, it was a way to um, expedite our technology into the clinic as rapidly as possible. That's important for a biotech company because you really want to know that your technology works as as fast as you can. So this is what we're actually doing. And then next year, uh, we will be working with uh, the same program in effect, but we're expanding it to more than one study site. And uh, we will be working with another commercial uh, CDMO to uh, actually manufacture a product that will be able to go to uh, multiple study sites. So uh, to do that, we've already actually done most of the development work around a cryopreserved product now. So we're gearing up ready to start that uh, entry into multiple study sites uh, as we speak. Yeah, very good. Um, So this is not uh, Paul Watton's first rodeo. I mean, you held leadership positions at Merck, Abbott, uh, many clinical stage biopharma companies along the way. Certainly, this is your uh, your your first IND experience. Probably one of several that you've notched uh, along the way. How, how is this one? How is this one different? Um. <laughs> so, well, I've never done a, a, a program like this when we've all been locked down before. So it's very different <laughs> in terms of. Yeah, you know, I wasn't, that. honest to God, I wasn't even thinking about the obvious answer when I asked that, <laughs> that's that question. Um, but I, yeah, you're right. I've, I've had, um, I've had INDs put on hold. Um, but, and the thing that I, I find I've gravitated towards career wise is taking a technology platform like the one at Obsidian um, and being able to turn it into a development product that you can actually get into the FDA and start treating patients. So it's being able to pivot from being a platform company to being a company where you actually are going into the clinic for the first time with your own technology. And then the other part of that is making sure that you also have validating partnerships along the way. So we have both BMS and Vertex here at Obsidian. So that strategy has been the same um, at Obsidian as other companies I've worked with. Um, if you go back in, in history, you'll see I ran a company called Antares, which was a injectable platform company, which was um, able to pivot towards becoming eventually a specialty pharma company based on injectable products. 
these were at-home administration of injectable products. That company just got acquired by Halozyme. So um, it's something that I like doing. I like taking platforms, turning them into products. Obsidian was no different in that respect. I think the um, the way we approached this, though, which was to take what is a very complicated therapy. Cell therapy is always complex, but this is an autologous cell therapy. And um, the way for us to expedite that was always going to be by uh, working with a group that was more experienced in working on these autologous cell therapies than we were at the time. And that's why the MD Anderson relationship was so important. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, it just came back to COVID. I mean, we would, mm-hmm. I think we would have not have developed that product ourselves internally in anywhere near like the time frame we were able to do it in conjunction with our colleagues down at MD Anderson. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to come back to that COVID thing. Uh, as, as I said, a little bit later, uh, when I, I'm going to ask for an update on, um, on the, on the Swift platform and where that went and how it kind of led you through uh, those dark times. But before we get there, I, I want to spend a little bit more time talking about this IND. And I, and I want to kind of frame this, the next couple of questions up in the, in the context of our, our audience. So, you know, we're, um, we're heard by a lot of leaders of, of biopharma companies that have yet to hit this milestone. Mm-hmm. And you just hinted at some sort of, I think to me, fundamental aspects of, uh, of this particular ID. The, the partnership aspect was important, obviously the, um, uh, to, to, to kind of backfill that uh, expertise uh, area. Um, but I'm wondering if you can help kind of distill for our audience uh, a few more pivotal moments along the way, right? So in the, in this, maybe in this uh, example or, or in any example, sort of pivotal moments that you've seen as the leader of, uh, of, of biopharma companies that have, have done this several times uh, along the way that uh, are sort of fundamental to the effort. Well, I think the, uh, the pivotal moment for us here at Obsidian was identifying that we actually had a path based on our platform to developing a product, which was the IL-2 free till, which was something that we had identified as an opportunity about three years ago, in actual fact. So it came as a result of scanning the the whole of the cell uh, therapy area, and we were looking for a place to apply our own technology. And we worked out that an IL-2 free till using our own membrane-bound IL-15 approach was actually a good opportunity for us to pursue. And then... We got together in October of 2019, um, actually off-site, and that's where the whole team got together to start planning out this um, program for what became OBX115. And so I I would say the the pivotal moment for us was identifying that there was an opportunity we could use with our technology um, and then getting together as a group to plan that out, because I think that when you have a rigorous plan, and we do go into a lot of details on our planning, um, you always are sort of aware of some of the things that could come back to bite you. You have contingencies in place. And I think importantly, it means you don't panic when things go wrong, if they mm. go wrong. Yeah. Um, and if things actually present themselves as an opportunity to accelerate the program, you can also recognize those opportunities as well. So actually going through that scenario planning with this was was really important. And getting the team together on the sort of offsite meeting for a couple of days was also very pivotal to us being able to, to get to where we wanted to be. Yeah. 
All right. I'm going to, I'm going to segue then. I've got more questions for you around the therapy, but, but, you know, you just brought up a, a beautiful segue around uh, overcoming challenges. So I'm just going to go right into the, the the COVID thing. And I want to get an update there. As I mentioned, the last time we spoke was uh, I believe it was July, 2020. And when mm-hmm. we, when we talked, and if you go back and listen to episode nine of the business of biotech, you'll hear Dr. Watton and I spent a lot of time talking about a platform called Swift that Obsidian developed purpose-built, like custom, a, a software platform. I'm, it, it's been a couple of years, so I may get some of the details wrong here, but a software platform designed to help Obsidian uh, schedule um, through the disruptions of having minimal you know, people in, in the labs and in the offices at once that would maintain the pace, you know, or at least attempt to, you know, to get to this point where you are now with the IND, uh, but but still respect uh, lockdown laws and, and internal rules around keeping employees safe. That platform subsequently became something that I, I think you guys, if I'm not mistaken, licensed to some, at, at the time, 30 other mm-hmm. uh, life sciences companies to, to go out there and use. Not I, I don't know if that platform even still exists or if there's a necessity for it, if it's grown into anything. But I guess the question I have for you around that platform and that conversation we had two years ago is, um, and, and, and Hey, if the platform does still exist, feel free to, to, to hawk it and tell us, you know, um, but, but the big question I have for you is coming out of that experience, uh, where, you know, the name of the game was keep the lights on, keep people in the, in the office, move, move in the lab, moving things forward, um, efficiently. What have you, what have you learned? What did you learn back then that you, that you've been able to transfer to the obsidian, that we're looking at today uh, around, yeah, it, process efficiencies, for instance, or, you know, working um, wor- working through challenges with minimal resources at times, obviously, dur- during COVID. What, what, what takeaways did you kind of pull out of that experience? Well, I think the first takeaway, I would say, and this is a general statement, really, but I think you know, all of the companies that are in this particular area of the country are innovative companies. And um, in this particular case, we just took innovation to a different level in a sense, because we were innovating outside of our core competence, which is biotech, and uh, were able to um, develop SWIFT. But it was a a technology approach which was developed as a result of a, a massive need we had, which was to keep the labs up and running yeah. whilst the rest of us were out of the office. And so that was um, really important for us. It was actually being able to recognize that there was a need to do something. And um, I was just uh, fortunate that we brought in a really great IT guy, Nick Betts, in I think it was about December of 2019. Yeah. And yeah, I, remember um, you, I remember you talking about Nick a couple of years. Yeah. Is, Nick, is Nick still with you? Nick is still with us, yes, yeah. yeah. And um, so we were able to implement two things. One was Teams, in actual fact. Nick came to see me in December and just said, I need to uh, spend money on a Teams uh, program. He said, it'll make the company much more efficient. Mm-hmm. And um, I let him do that. And then in January, we were all trained up on Teams, and none of us anticipated that by the end of February, we'd always be working on Teams. And so uh, Nick came to us, implemented that. So that was a pivotal moment for us, in actual fact, just bringing IT into the company rather than relying on an outside provider and grabbing control of that. 
Yeah. Um, and that went further because it meant that when we were dealing with MD Anderson, we could set up all of the links to them pretty quickly. Um, but then on top of that, we we had the SWIFT uh, opportunity as well, which was driven in part by um, somebody who's now the CEO at Chroma, Catherine Steeman Breen, who was an epidemiologist by training and just told us quite point blank in February, this thing's going to get really big and really fast. And that's when we recognized that we needed to do something. So without Catherine, I don't think we'd have reacted as fast as we did um, because she understood what the epidemic was going to, a pandemic was going to look like. And because of that, Nick was able to react in real time and develop SWIFT with his group and the group in the lab. So that kept us going. Um, we still use a variant of it today, but uh, it's times have changed and we have a full house here. Both, well, actually we have two sites now, one in Cambridge and one in Bedford, but um, we're operating effectively as a normal company now. Yeah. Although we still have people who are uh, sort of running a hybrid approach to to the workplace environment. Mm-hmm. It's, no, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, but Swift is really, um, it's kind of yesterday's technology for us now in a sense. When you're striving to excel in a new arena, the best guides are the ones already doing it well. The business of biotech brings those voices forward to help new and emerging biopharmas turn their innovations like mRNA and cell and gene therapies into clinical realities. Tune in and subscribe for insights on hiring, regulatory, and other need to know topics for biopharma leaders. The podcast is brought to you in collaboration with Cytiva. Check out their resources at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A.com backslash emerging biotech. I would imagine, I would imagine, I mean, I, I'm assuming, uh, I, I'm not sure, I don't remember, uh, you can refresh my memory if that was something that you you licensed out as, a, as you know, software as a service that was for, for sale to other life sciences companies, you were just giving them the technology. But I imagine that that uh, that opportunity is probably sort of dried up as well. You know, Obsidian's not so much a software company anymore. No, we didn't. And we never extracted revenues out of the, okay. the technology. We were just very... Um, altruistic at the time because we're all faced with this um, situation. One thing that um, was really important, I think, during COVID was the level of cooperation that we all encountered with partners. And um, one of the other things which I think contributed to our success was our ability to develop relationships with really good relationships with uh, partners, whether they were supplying us with the viral vectors we use um, whether it's working with Bristol Myers Squibb on their programs, we were pretty much all set to be able to do all of that yeah. um, during during the COVID lockdown. You uh, you know you work you 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 solved a problem um, with, with a software application, which is extraordinary in and of itself. To, you solved that problem to to work through a, a crisis situation um, as as a team. Um, and, and, you know, in a, in a strange way, when you experience something like that, there are, as I said, takeaways, lessons, perhaps, I don't know, in, infusions of something in the, in the company culture that you don't necessarily want to get rid of. You don't, you don't want to lose that, right? Even when things get back to some semblance of normal. What you know, looking back on it, uh, retrospectively, what would you say Obsidian has hung on to or adopted or, or learned? How, how did uh, that experience kind of shape who you are today and what you're doing today 
or the remnants of it, you know, within the, within the company? Yes. I think the, um, the first thing is it's all about people. So we were able to recruit good people during that period. Um, we did have people leave the organization as well, but we kept the culture mm-hmm. going. Um, I think the other thing that we've maintained is just the importance of, um, you know, good planning and not panicking when something goes wrong. I mean, the pandemic was something that no one anticipated, but just being able to keep calm and steady and move on through the programs, I think was really important. And that's something that's part of our culture here as well at the company. And then um, the other part of it was being able to communicate well with um, our partners that I referenced earlier and just Mm -hmm. making sure you have regular touch points with them. And um, I would say that a few of us, myself, um, and particularly my CSO, Jan, um, whilst we didn't expect other people to do this, we weren't um, slow in getting back on planes and traveling to see people. So I think trying to establish those personal contacts very early on during the um, the resolution of COVID was also important. Yeah. Yeah, one of the inherent challenge inherent challenges in in what Obsidian does is the fact that when you're developing novel precision therapeutics, you know you're doing a lot of stuff that's not been seen before, to put it very uh, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're engaging regulatory authorities who, in many cases, haven't haven't seen this before either. So, uh, I want to get back to that um, the the therapeutic itself and get your perception or some thoughts around your experiences with regulatory agencies, for instance, how, how do like, how, how have you sort of navigated this precision patient specific, you know, w- words like engineered uh, mm. qualities of your cell and gene therapies through the the regulatory experience? Well, I have to say that we found uh, the agents, the FDA to be really good to work with. And um, they've been, for us, a really good partner along the way. So we did have pre-IND correspondence with them. Um, This is a new technology, a new platform. And uh, I think that they were quite thoughtful in the way they approached it, as as were we, by the way. So, um, But it was all driven by just having good data. So we were very thorough in the data. And um, we approached the agency and had nothing but positive feedback from them, very helpful feedback. Uh, We are actually trying to treat a very um, difficult disease to treat, metastatic melanoma or lung cancer. And I think they saw the need for what we're doing, which is the ability to provide a till that's going to be safer. And we'll see in the long run, because we also expect it's going to be more potent as a till. We've certainly seen that in the animal models. But at the very least, it's a safer way to provide till therapy. And um, it's going to be a lower cost way to provide till therapy as well. So the value proposition is clearly there. And the agency were just very supportive of what we're trying to do here. Mm-hmm. Well, what do those pre-IND meetings look like? Give, give some, uh, I guess, insight into what those those meetings look like for those who haven't seen them before. Well, we have, um, well, actually, as was all done virtually again, because uh, we weren't able to go and meet with people. But, um, you know, you just got to check off the science, the checklist, make sure that all the experiments are laid out and make sure you've done all your safety studies correctly. Um, We had an advantage in that we're dealing with an autologous cell therapy. So the safety, there's uh, very little long term safety that you have to 
address um, in these initial stages. But uh, overall, I think the agency were very cooperative. And remember that they're also operating in very difficult circumstances as well. They're virtual most of the time. Um, and so I was actually quite impressed by the way that uh, our team was able to work with people to um, get stuff done, mm-hmm. which at the end of the day is what it's all about. Tell me about, um, while we're talking about personalized medicine, you know, you're, you're not producing, uh, you know, a, a monoclonal antibody or a small molecule that has universal application to, you know, one, one people and perhaps even multiple indications. You're vil- building very specific therapies for very specific people. And this is a, I'm going to start at a high level here because it's a difficult question to drill down on, but I, I want to get your perspective on what that means from a business perspective. You know, you're the leader of this this business. And obviously when we get into personalized medicine, the dynamics change from a patient identification standpoint to, you know, a, a, a payment standpoint to an addressable market standpoint. Um, so, so I don't know where you want to, st- where you want to start with this rambling question, Dr. Watton, but uh, what, what's the biggest, I guess, change uh, that you anticipate from a business perspective, given the fact that you're building this precision therapy well in actual fact um i am lucky enough to be a board member at various cell which is doing has done autologous uh, cell therapy for quite a while um they do uh, skin grafts of burn patients and they also do chondrocyte replacement for for knees and so the, those are cells that are taken away from a patient they're grown up and then given back to a patient in three to four weeks' time. So what we're doing with TILS is really identical to to what they're doing with um, that type of therapy. So Mm. I've been able to see that, at least as a board member, as to what they do to to be successful. Um, And then with with respect to our own TIL product, what we're doing is taking a patient's tumour. We're extracting the lymphocytes out of that tumour, and then we're growing them up in a lab to a sufficient number of cells that can be then given back to the patient in sufficient numbers to actually make a difference to to fighting their cancer. So I think that, um, yes, it's a complicated process, there's no doubt, but some of the things we have to keep an eye on, though, is how do we keep production costs down? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, if we make this more accessible, we've also got to find a way to make the economics better for everyone all around. And as an example, in fact, Elimination of IL-2 alone from both the manufacturing process and from the way you treat the patient is going to result in a savings of six figures. So straight away, we're able to see that we can um, we can achieve that. And secondly, we were able to um, develop a, a new manufacturing process for our tills compared to what other people do because we have the IL-15 on the tills already when they're in the lab being grown up, um, we're also able to make that manufacturing process more efficient. We're able to design the manufacturing process to give you better tills, younger memory phenotype, for example. So we we started off with a blank sheet of paper um, and we're able to design a product that we think will be more cost-effective. And um, I think we've taken an approach here which will lend itself to providing more patients with access to TILS, mm-hmm. better accessibility. And um, if we 
do what we think we can do with ad till, then there's going to be quite a high demand for that. And then it's just a matter of how do you drive down cost of production and make it really good value for money for, for patients and for the healthcare system. Yeah. Uh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say the other part of that is that you also have to build up right from where we're sitting today because this product could be launched in 26, 27 if everything went well. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other benefits of sitting on the board of Veris, and I've seen the way those guys have been able to provide the right kind of patient support, physician support, and put all of the infrastructure in place to make sure that reimbursement is not going to be a, a gatekeeper for um, access to that therapy. So starting to think about the commercial opportunity and how we build that out, we've actually already modeled out what a commercial organization would have to look like for us. Yeah. Um, but you can't start thinking about these things too early on. No, no, that's true. Um, and, and I've, I was I was about to jump in there with a, a question around administration, which is you know that's exactly where where you're going with that. What, what does that uh, administration or you know commercial administration um, environment look like in an ideal world for Obsidian? As much as you can share. Well, what I can share is we'll be um, well in terms of administering the product. What we're going to be doing is taking the patients' tills, growing them up in a manufacturing facility, which will probably be a centralized facility, and then shipping them out. This will be cryopreserved product to centers like MD Anderson, as well as centers which may not be geared for IL-2 treatment right now, but could well be geared towards giving cell therapy. So there are, for example, CAR-T centers in this country that don't qualify as being able to give till therapy because they don't have a crash suite next to an infusion suite. Mm-hmm. to be simplistic about it. Um, so yeah. we actually think that we'll be able to open up that commercial opportunity, um, making sure that we can provide product. We're not using any technology that hasn't been used before in terms of distribution. That's already there. So, um, And then I think it's just a matter of setting up all the right um, Salesforce infrastructure, the right consultative approach to being able to make these people use our technology successfully. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll see where this business goes. But I think that uh, um, it'll be a successful business ultimately because we are providing a better till and tills work. We know that. And so um, if we're giving this better till to patients, we can treat more patients. I think the value proposition is definitely there. Yeah. Is it a situation, uh, you know, looking looking down the road, uh, again, like you said, it's not. It's never too early to look down the road. So looking, looking way down the road, is it a situation where, um, you know, if, if successful and uh, the administration and you know distribution administration model is demonstrated at a place like MD Anderson, where mm-hmm. is it a situation where a lot of interest will generate, uh, kind of organically? from their administration and other clinics. I mean, and, and, you know, among, among specific uh, physicians and oncologists who pay attention to this stuff, uh, do, do they kind of see that, you know, play out in a place like MD Anderson and say, okay, you know, maybe, maybe we don't need to sell our hard clothes and sales guy in there. Cause we got some fans already. Well, I think that the, um, it's a great question. I think that the value of working with a world leading organization like MD Anderson um, actually pays off. Mm. because it creates awareness of of what you're doing. Ultimately, it's going to depend on the data. So we have to develop really good data in our clinical trials. And I think the data is going to be what makes this successful. 
And um, all I can say is we've we've tried to build for that success by working with the best people we can work with at leading centers, whether it's MD Anderson or some of the people we're working with on our viral vectors. Yeah. For example, we've tried to build a partnership model where we're working with the very best in whatever we do, plain and simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Um, so speaking of the data, w- looking at o- uh, OBX uh, 115, um, you know, when we sign off on on this interview here shortly, uh, you're going to turn around and, and and get back to work on the uh, er- early part of this this clinical uh, study. Uh, what's that work going to look like? Like, what is what's imminent? What like what's happening right now uh, to to get closer to that that uh, that data on OBX one one five? Right. So uh, we're in the process of site activation right now at MD Anderson. Um, we expect to have our first patients in um, in September, and then we'll be giving our tills to our patients in uh, the first patient in October. And we should start to see data coming out of this program in Q1 of next year. So we'll know how well the technology works. And um, I think that uh, from there, once we've actually got a good fix on the fact that our technology is working in the first few patients, then we obviously um, want to do one of two things, expand and accelerate the program and develop the technology for use in cancers beyond melanoma which would be lung i think in the next case Uh, in fact i know that's going to be the case and um on top of that we're going to have to raise financing so you know the time to do that is probably uh in the first half of next year when Mm -hmm. we've actually um been able to show that our technology works in man we treated a lot of mice successfully now we have to treat men and women Yeah, that's uh, I can imagine. You know, we we spend a lot of time talking about financing on this show with with leaders of biopharma companies and um, the the this timing strategy, especially at a, a clinical early clinical stage uh, like you're at right now. There's got to be uh, quite a bit of strategy that goes into that timing, like you said. You know, going out and looking for financing once you've got some probably solid uh, early clinical data to to go out there and, and hang uh, hang your hat on. Uh, any other, are there other considerations like at this stage in the game for obsidian, other considerations that go into when you go out there looking for that next round of financing, obviously, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the cash runway, I'm sure <laughs> plays into that decision as well. Well, we were, yeah, the cash runway, we were, um, able to raise a series B this time last year, which is 115. Um, we already had cash on our balance sheet that was quite strong because of the partnerships we've done and we're good until, um, the third quarter of 2024 with cash. We actually have two years runway on our books right now, mm-hmm. uh, which is important. Um, and so I think that uh, we'll be able to see good data during that time frame. And uh, But you can never have enough cash on the balance sheet of a company. And um, the real use of that cash for me would be accelerating the programs, which is what we intend to do next year. So the right time to raise money is when you intend to do more with what you have in terms of technology and make sure that you've de-risked it to the point you know it's actually going to work in patients. Are there uh, any candidates worth noting uh, coming on the heels of OBX115 or are multiple studies of of that candidate sort of the focus in the in the immediate future? Yeah, I think the uh, the technology itself certainly lends itself to more than one tumor type. So, you know, melanoma 1, 
uh, lung cancer. Secondly, uh, we have others we're thinking about too. And then behind that, we've actually started a really interesting um, analysis of what becomes the next generation uh, till. So we're looking at OBX115 now as a chassis mm-hmm. where we can then engineer in another protein and regulate that. So we've actually identified one candidate that looks really exciting. It's a non-obvious candidate in actual fact to work with IL-15 to make the uh, tumor microenvironment more susceptible to um, to what we're doing with our tills and for them to be even more successful. So we're now taking this to the next generation. And um, I can see that's very much for the future. What we have to do right now is just keep laser focused on getting OBX115 into the clinic and treating patients successfully with that one. Awesome. Good stuff. Now, what haven't I asked you, Dr. Watton, that I should have? Am I, am I missing any important uh, or, or big parts of the story here? I think you've got everything, actually, Matt. It's been a, a pleasure seeing you again and um, really happy to be back here after just over two years. Uh, there's a lot of water passed under the bridge, but we're all still here. And um, we haven't, I have to say that as a company, we've we haven't missed a beat on our way to the clinic. We did exactly what we said we were going to do. Uh, we filed the IND early in actual fact, and um, we're treating patients slightly earlier than we anticipated. But uh, it all comes down to good planning and good people and yeah. uh, putting that group of people together almost three years ago. Yeah, you know, I can't say I'm surprised because as I reflect, uh, even as as we speak now, I reflect on our conversation two years ago. I remember, uh, I remember the the story, idea, the pitch crossing my mm-hmm. desk. Here's a, a you know a, a PhD, a biopharma founder, longtime veteran of the space, uh, who you know developed whose company developed a software program to help manage people and resources. Right. And I thought, boy, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, I don't know if that really fits the bill. Uh, but then we, we we recorded that episode and we talked and, uh, the you know, I, I came away from that conversation uh, with uh, utmost confidence in Dr. Paul Watton's problem-solving ability. So mm-hmm. I, I guess I, I can't say as though I'm surprised that uh, you've uh, flourished th- despite the challenges for the past two years and got to this point. I congratulate you on on your awesome news around the IND clearance. And I don't anticipate it will be another two years before I have you back on the show because <laughs> I, uh, I, what I do anticipate is, uh, is uh, an exciting conversation in the near future around the data coming out of these clinical trials. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. And, um, you know, I, I don't know whether my problem solving capabilities are that good, but what I'm really good at doing is just, um, bring a group of people together to make something happen. And we've just created this phenomenal um, group here at Obsidian. And guess what? We've made it happen. So uh, now we just have to get into the clinic and look forward to chatting with you some point in the future um, when we start seeing data trickling from that. Yeah, well, for sure. And I wish you the, wish you and the team all the best in the meantime. Thanks for, okay. thanks for coming thanks, on. Matt. Yeah, Bye thanks for coming yeah. on, Dr. Watton. Cheers. So that's Obsidian Therapeutics CEO, Dr. Paul Watton. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva. Cytiva demonstrates its commitment to early and clinical stage biopharmas at its biotech accelerator, a trove of terrific content at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. Check that out. Check us out at bioprocessonline.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter. 
And if you're enjoying the podcast and conversations like this, please subscribe, give us a great review. And as always, thanks for listening. 